right, while everybody's coming in and taking their seat, just a couple of announcements to uh, to go over tonight. Just a reminder about Camp Rete. Uh, camp, I am on. Okay. Camp Arete uh, starts this Sunday, and a lot of folks will be leaving early, early, early Saturday morning to drive up, so we need prayer for them. And also, um, <clears throat> prayer for uh, Dick Mills' family. Uh, Dick went to be with the Lord yesterday morning. Many of you know uh, know Dick. Um, Dick uh, is the sort of stateside, has been the stateside manager for Jim Myers Ministries for, uh, since the inception, he and Jim, of course, very close friends, have gone back many, many uh, decades, and so this is, uh, um, you know, causing the shuffling of the deck for a lot of reasons, and just pray for, uh, pray for his wife, and his children are all adults, and living, he's got one daughter in France who's flying back, and Pray for them and pray for the memorial service, which will be at 12.30 this coming Saturday. And I don't know the location yet. We'll be sending that out. I don't know the location. And then there's going to be some sort of reception afterwards that will be here at West Houston Bible Church. Uh, Andy Woods is going to be doing the service on Sunday. Dick has been attending uh, Sugarland Bible Church for the last uh, five, five or six years. Um, I think that's it for announcements. Also, oh, this Sunday, this Saturday morning, we're going to have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30 in the morning, and uh, we'll continue our study uh, related to what the Bible teaches about being a, uh, being a man and a leader in the home, leader in every environment of life, what that means. And um, the police chief of Dallas, I posted this on my Facebook page yesterday, but this guy, if you've watched him, he's an exemplary individual. He's a believer. He goes to Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, which was founded by and is still pastored by Dr. Tony Evans. Some of you have heard Tony Evans on KHCB in the morning. Uh, Tony was one of my professors at Dallas Seminary and is a, uh, a well-known, nationally known uh, a Bible teacher. And this guy's, this chief of police there is really well grounded in the Word. And that's what we need is men like that. We need thousands of men like that uh, who can uh, lead in different areas in this country, men of integrity, men of virtue. And that's what we, we lack in this nation. <clears throat> How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of prayer. We'll have silent prayer to begin with, then I will open in prayer. Uh, let's let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful we can come together as a body of believers this evening. How important it is to be a testimony to the 
world and to the angels as we prioritize the Word of God in our lives and and not just coming together for uh, uh, the process of studying, but uh, learning it, assimilating it, taking that which has been taught and making it part of our, of our soul, the dynamic of our life, that we may live in a way that brings honor and glory to you and reflects your, your righteousness, your goodness, and your grace and love to the world around us. Father, we pray that as we continue our study in Samuel today that you'd help us to understand some of the significant uh, principles laid out in your word. As we go forward, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in 1 Samuel, although we're going to start not in 1 Samuel um, 15 tonight. We're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 20 as part of our review and the last part of our uh, study on the what the Bible teaches about uh, so-called holy war. And I want to review this just a little bit. We're getting going to get into the main text of chapter 15 this this evening, uh, ending up with one of the most significant uh, couple of verses in the chapter and in the Old Testament, I think, that uh, we need to focus on in, at uh, verses 22 and 23 of chapter 15, where... Samuel is going to tell Saul that that um, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is the sin of of a divination and idolatry, and that is so important to understand. That that is a very significant doctrine. So we'll be setting up for that before we get into it. But the backdrop to understand the passage is this question about uh, so-called holy war. In the Bible, because if you're ever talking to some people, this is a question that comes up: is how can God be justified in uh, telling and calling for the annihilation of a people? So we've taken the time to think about this. Uh, first point, just for quick review, is that the term "holy war" is not one we should use. Uh, this is a term in the English uh, that came along and really late. Uh, the idea of a holy war, even in, in, in Latin, reflected ideas in the in the in the Crusades, ideas related to what uh, Islam was doing. But it's not an adequate term, and should not be used. Uh, it's just because it's not an adequate term for the biblical term, which is this word harem, which we've studied, which is translated in the dictionaries as to ban, to destroy, or to devote something to God. And as I, I pointed this out, looking at the um, Hebrew dictionaries, the uh, TWOT says it's the exclusion of an object from the use or abuse of man. And that, as I've reflected on this more and more, is, is really central, is that we're not going to see the Israelites taking plunder from the Canaanites, it's not to enrich them. It's not for their personal benefit, either spiritually, materially, economically, or in any other way. Uh, the theological New International Dictionary of Old Testament Theology and Exegesis says it's consecration for service to God. This is has to do with God's judgment on these reprobate, perverse cultures that God has given them grace upon grace upon grace. And see, what happens when you come at this from human viewpoint, you're, you're looking at this, at this and saying, why does God want these people slaughtered? And we have to stop and think about who God is 
he's righteous and he's just. And that means that in his dealings with his creatures, whatever he ultimately does has to be consistent with his righteousness and his justice. And some people say, yeah, well, what about his love? Well, his love is always in relation to his righteousness and justice. God doesn't just overlook our sin because he's a nice guy and because he just wants to love us. God's not a permissive God. God is a God who, whose righteousness and justice must first be satisfied. The demands of his justice, uh, which reflect the values or the standards of his righteousness. His righteousness expresses the absolute perfect standard of his character. His justice is the application of that to his creatures. But because God is also love, and these are not, uh, often when you think of, when people think in terms of, um, human viewpoint, they set these up as being mutually contradictory. What the Bible shows is they work together in a complementary fashion so that uh, his love, out out of his love, he devised a plan whereby his righteousness could be satisfied and his justice, therefore, could also be satisfied because the legal payment for sin was taken care of. And that's what happens at the cross. So that then God is free by virtue of the fact that the legal penalty for sin is taken care of to bless his creatures through this provision of a salvation that if it's accepted, then his justice and righteousness are satisfied and he is free to uh, shower his grace blessings upon his upon his creatures but for those who continue for year after year decade after decade century after century generation after generation to flaunt his grace to rebel against him to ignore him to deny him to worship other gods then eventually as they deteriorate and and degenerate into some of the most horrible uh civilizations we've ever seen As that happens, eventually God needs to intervene and to bring an end to what is essentially a malignant growth that, if it's allowed to continue, could threaten the very existence, the continued existence uh, of the human race. So this is the backdrop. Without an understanding of the character, a true understanding of the character of God, and a true understanding of how God in his sovereignty governs over all mankind, and we have to remember that mankind uh, are not just accidental creatures who popped up as a result of of millions of years of accidental uh, mutations. That they are uh, specifically cre- the mankind is specifically created by God to reflect who He is. Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven says that we're created in the image and likeness of God. So as image bearers, we have a resp- We're created for a purpose, and that is to reflect Him. And our purpose is to glorify Him. And when we violate that and we live on our own in rebellion against Him, eventually there's there are going to be consequences uh, that come. And as the creator of mankind, creator of the universe, he has the right, he has the responsibility, and he has the authority to to execute his justice in whatever way 
he determines is best because he alone is omniscient and knows all of the facts. So as a result of that, in God's will, he uh, ordered this, this harem, this annihilation of certain restricted peoples. Okay, in contrast to contrast to the, the the Christian Crusades, which went against everything that is taught in the New Testament, uh, the you know Islam is doing everything consistent with its foundational principles and what's stated in the Quran. The Christian Crusades went against everything. So when people raise this issue, well, there was a lot of injustice on the part of Christians. Yes, you're right. There was a lot of injustice because they violated the standards and the foundation of the revelation of God. But what we have in Islam is just the opposite. It is the consistent application of what uh, what the Quran says. And so uh, if we take the term that's applied for jihad or holy war and transfer that to what we see in the Old Testament, we are... At the very beginning, we're presuppositionally changing what was going on. And these are some of the differences that I was hoping hoping to bring out. Uh, and that was the third point, that the core idea in harem is to consecrate something to God because it's being judged. This was something serious and significant spiritually. It was uh, man, the Israelites were functioning as the instrument of God, and therefore they had to perform in a manner that conformed to the righteousness of God. And one of these distinctions, we'll see it in Deuteronomy 20 in just a minute, is that there was no personal benefit, no spiritual benefit that accrued to anyone uh, because they participated in harem. There was no personal plunder that came to them. Okay, so that's just a quick review of those first three points, and then I want to go to uh, develop out a little bit more the ninth and tenth points that I covered a, a couple of weeks ago. And to do that, I want to look at Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20 gives us the uh, principles, the guidelines for uh, warfare. But it's not just warfare in general. It relates to specifically the warfare of God's chosen people, in terms of the warfare that God has called them uh, called them to. Now, if we look at the first uh, two verses, let me just read this first point to you. Um, that during this limited period of history, which goes from the conquest in roughly 1406 B.C. through the last period of Saul's kingship, which is first period, uh, first Samuel 15, which we're setting now. The rules of engagement are laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 20, specifically in Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18, and it's applied only to specific tribes of Canaanites that lived in the land. It wasn't for everybody. In contrast, jihad is to cause everybody in the world to submit to Allah. And the Christian crusades were basically an just absolutely a a destructive force. They were to soak originally. They were to free the religious sites in the Middle East from the uh, being destroyed by the Muslims. But it was 
quickly it quickly degenerated and there were many abuses they not only attacked uh, Muslims they decided to attack and destroy Jews and well let's just kill anybody who gets in our way it, it just degenerated into a general uh, melee and it had nothing at all to do with any higher values of righteousness at all but that's not what we see described in, De- in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 20 so we're looking at Deuteronomy 20. Let me just give you a little bit of the outline here. In the first four verses, what we see is that God gives the general principles. This is the overview. And the main theme in the first four verses is don't be afraid. When You're going to go into war, but the primary directive is don't be afraid. And the reason is, is because the God who brought you out of Egypt is going to be the God who gives you victory. And God has promised, and he will make it so. So what we see here in um, verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, you're outnumbered, you're outgunned, you're you're going to be against those who have a better uh, tactical and strategic advantage. They've got uh, better military training. Uh, They're more numerous. Do not be afraid of them. That's the prime thing. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the hand, uh, out of the land of Egypt. In verse two. So it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. So it's not a just a military conquest where a general is going to come out and give a pep talk uh, to to the troops like Patton at the beginning of the film. Patton. It's the high priest who comes out which casts everything that's done within the framework of the Mosaic Covenant and the promise of God to give the land to his people, which goes back to the Abrahamic Covenant. It is therefore part of God's plan and purpose for Israel and is restricted to that. He says to them in verse 3, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. And he starts off with this. It's the same phrase you have in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, that is Shema. And, and, and in Hebrew, the word Shema is the word to listen or to hear. But it's not doesn't refer to just having your auditory nerves stimulated. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a situation. You tell somebody something and they say, they say okay, I got it. And you say, no, you really didn't hear me. What you're saying is what the Bible is saying is hearing means not just saying, yeah, I understood the vocabulary and I could tell you what you said, but it means to do what I said. And that's what God said. When God says, hear, O Israel, he's saying, do what I'm telling you to do. And that becomes an idiom that enters into English as well. He says, today you're on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Notice here he says uh, four things. He says, don't let your heart faint, which is a Hebrew idiom, which uh, the verb there means don't let it get soft. Don't become soft-hearted. Uh, don't give in to 
your emotions in the middle of battle. There's a time for war and a time for peace. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes said. Uh, there is a time when you have to do harsh things in life. As a parent, you need to uh, discipline your children at times. As uh, uh, in other areas of life, there are times when if you're an employer, you may have to call an employee in and you may have to correct them. You may have to fire them. There are different circumstances you have to. You can't just give in because you are uh, soft hearted. Second thing he says is don't be afraid, which is the basic Hebrew verb for fear. The third thing he says is do not tremble. And this is the Hebrew word chafatz. And in some places it's translated don't flee. In other passages it's translated don't be afraid. Uh, it's, uh, it's, got, it's a synonym for fear and, and, and living on the basis of your fear, acting on the basis of your fear. The third word is, I mean, the fourth word is, or phrase is do not be terrified. Again, it's a, another synonym for fear, aratz. And it means don't be awed or frightened or panicked or overcome by terror. So all of these these phrases together uh, reinforce each other is, is don't give in to your emotions. Now, we can be in a lot of circumstances where we have a lot of, lot of emotions. Uh, emotions can ra- range from sorrow and sadness to uh, excitement. Emotions can run from fear and worry. And we don't take counsel of our fears or our worry or our anger or our sorrow or our sadness. There's nothing wrong in and of itself with those emotions. What's wrong is when we use those emotions as a rationalization or justification for sin. Jesus went through emotional distress the night before he went to the cross. We looked at a word uh, Sunday morning in our study of Second Corinthians 5 that was used to describe Jesus in the garden, lupeo. And so he had these emotions generated because he was a true human being as he anticipated the torture, the physical torture, the physical pain, as well as the spiritual uh, suffering that he would endure on the cross as the perfect Lamb of God was impacted by our sin when it was imputed to him. And yet he did not sin. He had these, this emotional turmoil, but he did not turn from, his, from God's plan or God's uh, objective. So it's very important to understand that, that we face emotional trauma. You may even have panic attacks uh, as you face certain things, but it's what you do with it. Um, anger is often, uh, we, I see so many people that just have this undercurrent of anger uh, in their soul. And that is often because if you think about its most simplistic form, anger is a result of not getting your way. If you if somebody prevents you from doing what you want to do, then the immediate response of our of our sin nature is anger, and if that goes on for a period of time, then you become more and more angry. If you get in circumstances where, let's say, you're working for a long period of time in an environment where you're facing 
um, unjust criticism or injustice. You don't get any kind of a pay raise or recognition or anything. And you really desire to go somewhere in that career, but you're not getting anything, then you can start developing uh, anger because somebody is keeping you from getting what you want. And uh, eventually, if that becomes perceived that you're never going to get it, uh, and, and your hope isn't based on eternal things but on temporal results, then you can start becoming depressed. And, um, and if you act on these emotions because you're not on, don't understand where they're coming from or how you're supposed to apply the problem-solving devices of spiritual skills uh, to those emotions, then you're going to end up in uh, a, a state of spiritual distress and all kinds of other problems are going to result from that. So this is what God is addressing here. <clears throat> if you keep your eyes on God, who's going to solve the problems, who's greater than any of the enemies that you face in life, uh, even if you're in a battle, God is going to be the one who is going to give you the victory, but you have to trust in him. You not only have to do the right thing, but you have to do the right thing the right way. And one of the sad things we have today in Christianity is a lot of people who think that they just do what the Bible says any way they want to. You see it in evangelism. There's right ways and wrong ways. There's biblical ways and non-biblical ways to do evangelism. There are biblical ways and non-biblical ways to worship. There are biblical ways and non-biblical ways to pray. Just because it makes you feel good doesn't mean it's right. So we have to do the right thing the right way, otherwise it's, it's, it's wrong. So this is how they are being uh, instructed at the beginning. But what th this is the instruction of the priest. So you have a, uh, an army going into war, and they are being led and directed by their uh, religious leader who is directing their attention to the spiritual issues that are, are involved. And he said, gives them these four commands not to be, that relate to not being afraid. And then he explains it in verse 4. It begins with that English word for, which reflects uh, a preposition in the Hebrew that indicates cause. He's telling you why you can, uh, you're not to do this. The Lord your God, and that always through here it refers to Yahweh, and that reflects on the covenant of uh, the Mosaic covenant. Yahweh your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies uh, to save you. And so it puts the ultimate deliverance not on technique. This is what you get with psychology today. Uh, everybody is so psychologized in our culture. It's technique, and even beyond that, it's, it's medication. But, it, see, Scripture says it's, it's the right technique. It's not the technique that's generated by going through various experiments and observation and empiricism. It's the technique of trusting the Lord, uh, the, what we call the faith rest drill, uh, trusting in God, mixing our faith with the promises of God. And he's the one who fights for us against our enemies to save you. Now, the word save there isn't talking about eternal salvation. It's talking about deliverance and victory within the combat of the harem war. 
And then starting in, uh, starting in verse 5, uh, we see that God begins to establish limitations on who could fight. Not every adult male in Israel was expected to fight. There's a certain amount of wisdom here, and often, you know, if, as you, if you look at these, you might think, well, that's pretty lenient. God is really uh, relaxed, and, and he's, he's letting a lot of conscientious objectors off the hook. And in a way, he is, because he wants to make sure that those are who are engaged in this type of warfare are those that are truly conformed and applying his word. They are trusting him. And if you're not trusting God to give you the victory, then you're going to be what? You're going to be afraid, you're going to be terrified, you're going to tremble, you're going to panic, and all of those other things. So we look at at verse 5, and he says uh, there are certain distractions that you need to be careful of uh, because if you're going to go to war, the, the warriors need to not be distracted by uh, legitimate concerns at home. And so he says here, first of all, that if somebody's recently moved into a new house— but they haven't dedicated it. In other words, they're still in the process of establishing uh, this this house. And in the ancient world, most of these houses and properties were were income producing properties. So this is a new uh, a new venture, and he's still focused on getting all of that uh, stabilized and squared away. He said, "Don't distract him. If he's got in in a new house and he hasn't dedicated it." Uh, and that dedication would come within a fairly short time within the first year, but this just shows this is something brand new. His attention, his focus is divided. Let him stay home. There's, God isn't saying, well, he shouldn't do that. God doesn't make a case, an issue out of it. He says, if that's the case, let him go home. Don't put him in a double-bind situation where you're expecting him to do something that is probably beyond anyone's capability. Let him go and return home, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicated. Then he gives another example. He says if somebody's planted a vineyard, uh, this isn't somebody who's had a vineyard for a while, but somebody who is just starting out, they're just establishing a business, don't wipe out their business before it gets started. It's a very pro-business uh, pro-capitalism type of mandate. He's just starting a business. Let him run the business. Let him get established. Don't wipe out his source of revenue and his source of income, and don't wipe out his wealth at the time. Let him, If he's planted a vineyard, but he hasn't enjoyed its fruit or its production, then let him stay. Or if he's just gotten engaged, his mind is filled with love. He's not going to be good in combat, um, so let him. Don't don't expect him to go into combat. Let him establish his family. Let him let him marry. If he's just gotten engaged, let him marry. Let him begin to produce children so that his line goes on. See, it's understanding the divine institution number three of the importance of family and the importance of marriage. So all of these stipulations here relate back to to reaffirming those basic basic divine institutions. And then some further restrictions uh, are given. Uh, we look at verse 8. The officers should speak further to the people and say, What man is there who's fearful and faint-hearted? Now, you may have heard somebody say, Well, if, if you're 
If you're fearful and faint-hearted, you just have to be tough. You need to go in the military anyway, and you need to serve. But he's saying if, if, if you are fearful and faint-hearted, go home. That's fine. We don't need you. We don't want you. You don't want to be drafted? Fine. You know, we want people who are going to trust the Lord. Look at this in context. We want those who are going to trust the Lord so that we would rather have 300 men with Gideon who trust the Lord than 32,000 who don't trust, where, where most of them don't trust the Lord. Then you're going to have a problem. I, I said this after, after my experience in my first church as a pastor, that I would have rather have 10 people who really wanted to study the Word and wanted to grow than a church of 300, 400, 500, where 90% of them were just there because, oh, we like the music program. We're here because you have a good youth program. You, t- you take care of our kids. We're here for all kinds of other reasons. And you see this often. There are churches in this city who have, who have junior choirs that are bigger than our church. There are churches in this this city that have choirs that will seat 800, 900, or 1,000 people. And they have beautiful music. But the people who go to those churches for the music, and they go for the singing, and they'll have orchestras, it's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. But the trouble is, most of those people who are there for the music and everything that's associated with it, they don't give a rip about learning the Bible. They're there in order to express, it gives them a place to express their talents. And I don't want them. They're just going to cause problems. That's what God is saying. You, you, you're, you're going to be afraid? Great. I don't want you. You're going to be a problem. Go home. So that was one, one reason. Uh, <clears throat> if you're fearful or faint-hearted, let him return, go and return to his house. Let's the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. He's also going to be a bad influence on others. Verse 9, so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking with the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. In other words, organize, make divisions. And then, verse 10, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. Now, this introduces the next section, which deals with the, the rules of engagement. Uh, these are the ru- rules of engagement that we see, and there's two sections to this. The first section in terms of the rules of engagement are verses 10 through 15, which describe the rules of engagement for those who were not uh, Canaanites, those who were uh, surrounding the land, uh, those who may have even, uh, that, that, they, that they would have encountered. Uh, it's not specifically addressing the Moabites, the Edomites, um, or others, the Ammonites, but it would have applied to them because they weren't in and living on the land God had promised to them. They weren't part of the um, the Canaanite uh, group. Verse 17 talks about the Canaanites as being comprised of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites and Jebusites. There were a few other ites that were in there as well. So uh, verse 10. You, you you go to the city, you give them, you send in a messenger under a white flag, a truce flag. You you say, okay, we're, we'll let you everybody live if you will surrender to us. You make an offer of peace. But what happens if they say, no, we're going to fight? 
If um, it shall be, verse 11, it shall be if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Tribute means you're going to be able to tax them, and that's going to benefit you. Remember, in Karim, there's no benefit financially, economically, any other way to Israel. But these are the non-Canaanite people, so they can be placed under tribute, and they're, they're, uh, they will be a source of tax revenue for you. Verse 12 tells us what will happen if they... If they don't, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. Uh, you're going to capture it. When the Lord gives it to you, you shall kill every male in it with the edge of the sword. Now, that's in contrast to harem, where every man, woman, child, and nursing infant is annihilated. In this case, only the men are annihilated. Why? To prevent future uh, future rebellion. These would be the males of military age. Verse 14, but the women, the little ones, uh, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all of its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. See, in harem, there's no plunder. But this isn't harem. This is dealing with those who are outside of the land, but who may be enemies of Israel. So they are to be plundered, and <clears throat> then the the women, the children, the livestock, all of that is still there to benefit the Israelites. Verse 15, Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, not the ones who are near, who are in the land, who are very far from you, which are not of the cities of the nations. Verse 16 then introduces the rules of engagement against those <clears throat> tribes who were in the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. That is a pretty inclusive list. Nothing that breathes. Cats, dogs, mice, sheep, goats, cattle, <clears throat> Men, women, children, nursing infants. It seems really harsh, but God is obliterating the cancer. It is his judgment on these people. And God, remember, God told Abraham that he would take his descendants out of the land for over 400 years to give these people 400 years. Let me see. It's 2016. 400 years ago was 1616. That's a long time. People were just barely beginning to colonize in, in America at that time. So you think about that. For 400 years, he allowed this civilization to reach its, its full uh, sin potential and to fully become rotten. And so now he is going to bring judgment because they've had opportunity after opportunity to turn to God, and they've rejected that. So the, nothing remains alive. Now, God doesn't do that with every civilization. He didn't do that with the Chinese. He didn't do that with the uh, Indian civilizations that were Hindu. He didn't do that with the uh, extremely pagan Japanese 
or the Koreans or the Russians or any other. He does that only with a few people because these are the people who are in the land that God has promised to Israel. It's related to his plans and purposes for Israel, which means his plan and purposes for the seed, for the Messiah, and ultimately for the establishment of the kingdom. And if you don't grasp that whole framework, then it's going to be real easy to look at this and go, God's just sort of an arbitrary, hostile, violent God. But once you understand what God is doing and why, then it makes sense. It no longer allows for the for the rationalization uh, against the character of God. So in verse 17, But you shall utterly destroy them. That's our word, harem. You shall harem them. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. That's the mitzvah. That's what God commands, so that's what we do. Why? Because if it comes from God, it's right. Lest, there's a reason. It's not just pure judgment. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. Ultimately, it's a spiritual. Now, what happens? What happens when they go into the land is they originally take out the major uh, the major cities and the major uh, areas of occupation, Joshua, I mean, Jericho, I, uh, cities in the north, cities in the south. But then if you read through the first chapter of Judges, uh, you see that initially they are consistent and they uh, obey the Lord. They kill everybody, but then they quit. They start compromising. They leave groups and cities alive. And what happens historically is those Canaanites begin to influence uh, the Israelites so that by the time you get a hundred years past the period of the uh, of the conquest and you're into the first couple of judges cycles, you see that the Israelites are thinking, beginning to think and act like Canaanites because they're being influenced. And so we learned that God was absolutely right. If you don't remove those elements that influence you in a sinful, rebellious direction. If you don't take those temptations, if you don't get rid of the chocolate cake and ice cream that's in your refrigerator uh, when, you're, when you're going on a diet, you will not survive the first two days. Okay, it just, it's the same principle. Uh, if you don't remove the sources of evil and temptation from your culture, then they will influence the next coming generations, and you will self-destruct. And this is what, what happened then, and we're seeing it happen uh, in, our, in our culture and our civilization. So <clears throat> then verse 19 and 20, just to close out the chapter, When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. God is an environmentalist. Who knew? Right? He is saying, don't, this will, in the, if you destroy all the trees that are surrounding these, these cities, then that will come back and, and hurt you in the long run. 
leave the trees there. Treat God's creation with respect in terms of what it's going to be used for. See, the rationale here isn't the pagan rationale of the modern environmentalist movement, which is really worshiping the creation and not the creator. It is a recognition that God created the natural resources for us to use to improve our civilization. And if in warfare you go and destroy all the natural resources, then when the war is over with, you're not going to have anything in order to uh, develop uh, after you, when, you, when you rebuild. So they weren't supposed to destroy the trees. Incidentally, when you go to Israel today, there are a lot of places you go and you don't see a lot of trees. You go to some areas and you see a lot of trees and there's been a press for reforestation in Israel for at least uh, 40 or 50 years. I remember when I was a kid even seeing commercials on television. A lot of you remember this too. You still see them to donate so much money and they'll plant trees and in, in Israel. And this has been going on and they have planted millions and millions of trees because up until the time that, that the Israelis really, that the Jews began to go back into the land, starting with the, the first and second Aliyah at the end of the 19th century and 20th century, as they went back, they had these swamps that were just fetid. I mean, they, these horrible swamps where they, malaria, all kinds of mosquito-borne uh, diseases, uh, they had to drain the swamps. They had to do a tremendous amount of work to make the land usable again. And the other thing they had to do was to start building trees. Trees would be helpful for uh, irrigation, to maintain the soil. It's important for the production of CO2. Of course, modern environmentalists are against the production of CO2. They don't understand that CO2 is, is what plants love. It makes them grow, makes them green. And, um, and, and in the... In the period as part of God's judgment on Israel, during the worst period during the, the late Middle Ages from the middle of the 1500s when our, our the 15th century, and uh, about in the 1450, uh, somewhere in that area when Jerusalem was captured by the, by the Ottomans and by the Turks, you had the beginning of the, of the Ottoman Empire, which existed until, until uh, 1918, the end of, of World War I. And what was the policy of the, bit of the, of the uh, Ottoman Empire? Policy of the Ottoman Empire was to tax your property on the basis of the trees that were on the property. So if you had a property that was f covered with forest, then you wanted to cut it all down so that you wouldn't have to pay, pay all those extra taxes. And, and so this was a policy that led to the destruction of the trees and the vegetation and the forest. And so by the time Mark Twain came to uh, Israel, uh, came to Palestine in the mid-19th century, and Palestine was just the geographical term for that administrative district within the Ottoman Empire, he said Israel was just barren. It was like a desert everywhere. And some of the pictures that you see from the late 19th century, there, there are no trees anywhere. Uh, they're gone. Why? Nobody wanted to pay the taxes. So this was a way in which God brought judgment on the land and made it barren. And now that has all been changing. So um, God makes a point out of this. Don't cut down the trees when you attack the city. 
Verse 20, only the trees which you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city. So some trees are going to be palms, date palms, other things uh, good for production, fruit trees, things like that. Uh, keep those. Other trees you can use to create uh, for, for lumber to build your siege engines. So there is a solid rationale behind the whole concept of harem warfare. Uh, and it was only for those groups and one other group, the Amalekites. And why the Amalekites? Because of their opposition to Israel when they first came out of Egypt, and God pronounced a judgment on them at that time. And that's the backdrop for our opening in First Samuel chapter 15. So let's turn to First Samuel 15, and we will work through the first part of the chapter to set ourselves up for understanding uh, the verses that come up in verses uh, uh, 22, 23, uh, 24, because th- these verses are crucial uh, for a lot of different reasons, which we'll get into next week. So starts off with Samuel coming to Saul, gives him a command from the Lord. So the first three verses give Saul's operation order. He is going into combat, and this is what you're going to do. Um, He reminds him that the Lord sent him to anoint him king over his people. What's he really saying? You're under God's authority. Think about where we're going in the story. When we get down to verse verse, uh, 22, uh, Samuel will say, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. So from the very first verse in this story, we're reminded God is the authority over Saul. He is not an autonomous ruler. The rulers in Israel were under law, under the rule of law and under the authority of God. The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now listen Listen, Shema, heed. That means don't just don't just hear the words uh, and have your uh, eardrum stimulated, but do what God says to do. Hear the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, a reminder of who God is. He is the commander of the armies of Israel. The word hosts is an antiquated term for army. And it's still that word, Shabbat, is still part Sabaoth rather it's still part of the a title for the armies of Israel uh Sabaoth Haganah Israel it's the uh armies um uh, the forces of the armies of Israel thus says the Lord God the Lord of hosts I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel that's going back to Exodus chapter 17 what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek. Utterly destroy all that they had. That's the word harem. Wipe it all out. And make sure they understand that. Don't spare anybody. Kill man, woman, infant, nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. In other words, everything that takes a breath. So on this map, we have Amalek is down here. This They were a migratory group. They had some cities. But they dominated down in the Negev. Negev is the Hebrew word for south. So they covered uh, they covered this, the south area. Skip that slide for now. 
And then he says attack. The word for attack is a Hebrew word, nacha, and uh, that means to smite. That was the old King James, smite the people. I always liked that word. Uh, it's in the Hifil uh, stem, which means it's causative, cause them to be smitten, to be uh, killed. Go attack. It's not just attack them. It uh, has that idea of, of killing them. And then utterly destroy, which is carom, ban, devote all that they have, don't spare them. So there are these various groups that surround Israel, the Arameans, the Philistines, Ammonites, the Moabites, the Edomites, and then down here, Amalek. Now those rules for harem did not apply to these other groups. They because they were the non-indigenous people in um, in the promised land. But it is going to apply to Amalek because of what happened in Exodus chapter 17. So we have passages like uh, Numbers 13.29, the Amaleks dwell in the land of the south, the land of Negev. The Hittites... Jebusites, Amorites, we just saw that list. Those are the people, the, the Canaanites that are going to be under the ban. They dwell in the mountains. That's the center um, hill country. You can see on this map, this center ridge here goes from the hill country of Judah in the south, or Judea in the south, and up the hill country of Samaria. That's the backbone of, of, of Israel. That's where the Hittites, Jebusites, the Jebusites lived in uh, Salem, which is now Jerusalem, and the Amorites dwell on the mountains, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. So this area along here between Phoenicia in the north and Philistia, this area is called the Shephelah. This is the coastal plains, and then along the uh, Jordan River. That's where the Canaanites lived. Exodus 17 tells the story of the battle, and when, God, when uh, uh, Moses had his arms held up by Aaron and Hur, and as long as he held his arms up, God gave them the victory, and so then he instituted a memorial and gave God another uh, name, the Lord is my banner, and then the verse to look at is verse 16, because the Lord has sworn Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That starts in Exodus 17. In Deuteronomy uh, 25, just look at verse 19. Therefore, Moses says, Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from the enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek. What's the order of events here? You're going to conquer the land. And when you finally have rest, which came under Saul, when you finally have rest, then you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek. Now, when we look at the next four verses, or the next six verses, rather, the next six verses, I've sort of crammed them all on the screen here because I wanted to point something out. What we see here is Saul's actions. We saw the marching order, the operation order, that you're to go, take the army and wipe everybody out. And now we're going to see what Saul does. And it's very clear that this is all on Saul. Notice what we see, verse 4. So Saul gathered, verse 5, and Saul came. 
verse 6. Then Saul said, verse 7, and Saul attacked. Verse 8, he, that is Saul, also took Agag, king of the Amalekites. Verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag. So those six verses tell are, are all about Saul and laying the responsibility on Saul. Divine institution number one, personal accountability to God, personal uh, volition. So we see in verses 4 and 5 that Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Now, just a note here that in, in modern Hebrew studies and in modern Old Testament studies, there's great debate over what the Hebrew word Eleph means. Does that really mean thousand, or does it mean like a clan, or does it mean a large group? And the trend in most of our human viewpoint Old Testament studies is that this isn't a thousand. I was very pleased last week. Last week, if you remember, we covered the archaeology on I and the week before on Jericho. And right now, uh, there's been a team of three men who conducted, through most of June, an excavation at Etel, which uh, I was making a case for last week that this is uh, the location for the biblical for biblical eye, which is a more uh, traditional view. In recent years, uh, the biblical uh, research associates have, uh, under Bryant Wood, have argued for a close a site close to that Kerbet al Makater. But uh, last week, the day after I taught this on Tuesday night, on Wednesday morning, I got an email from Joel. They've completed their work, and he said, we found hundreds of of examples of late bronze and middle bronze pottery in our excavation of Etel. Now, that's important. Because the view of the other uh, the other side, and they're they're solid Bible believers too. I keep wanting to impress that, is that they've taken the the conclusions of some some uh, the excavations in the 1950s, uh, which said no, there was no evidence of occupation at Etel through the Middle Bronze or Late Bronze period. That's countered what John Garstang found in 1928, and it countered what. Uh, uh, these guys found just in the last two or three weeks. So that was great news. And the other thing I question, I had asked him a question about, I said, do you guys, are you guys in agreement that all of this contemporary discussion that Elif, the Hebrew word translated a thousand, that that is, that, are you in agreement that that means a thousand, the traditional understanding of that number is correct? And uh, both guys responded to me and said, we haven't seen any argument yet that comes close to convincing us that it means anything else. And uh, that's important to get out there for somebody who's like John down here is going to study this in Hebrew. Um, you, you don't buy that. You stick with the traditional view there. So they had 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of, of Judah. Now remember... In, in the book of Numbers, when they, they took a census of all the men uh, of fighting age, all the men over 20, uh, fighting age, and, and uh, that they numbered the men in Israel, and the total in Numbers 2651 was 601,730 men. So this is a third of the 
a fighting possible fighting force in Israel. So it's it's uh, very possible, and they're going after their their um, uh, their greatest enemy, Amalek. So it's 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 not unreasonable. They've got two hundred thousand foot soldiers and ten thousand men uh, of Judah, and Saul comes to the valley city of Amalek, sets up an ambush, and he shows grace to the Kenites. The Kenites had shown favor to Israel. The Kenites were uh, related to Moses' wife, and so he gives them the opportunity to to leave, uh, so they don't get destroyed, which they did. And then we're told Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. Now, here's a map. Nobody's really sure where Havilah is located, probably in this area over here, somewhere near Kadesh, Barnea, or south, in this area between what is now Elat down here at Etzion Gever, uh, somewhere in this area in the wilderness of Paran. All of this territory was pretty much being dominated by the Amalekites. Then and here's the wilderness of Shur, which is east of Egypt. So they 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 have a long running battle uh, across uh, the Sinai. And he takes Agag alive. He utterly destroys all the people, but they spare Agag. Verse nine and the best of the sheep, the ox, and the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. They were unwilling to utterly destroy. Uh, to destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. If, if it was junk, they destroyed it. But if we, it's going to make us rich, uh, we, and then we'll rationalize it. And then Samuel comes up, and he is going to confront and indict Saul. So we'll stop there. Uh, there's a couple of things that we have to talk about that are going to make a, take a little more time than we have, and we'll come back next week and start with 1 Samuel 15.10. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that you are a God of grace, that you are also a God of righteousness and justice, a God whose love is free, freely given to us because you had a plan whereby your righteousness and justice would be satisfied, that many things that you have done in history may not make full, full sense to us, but we understand uh, the answer to the question Abraham raised shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And even though in our limited understanding we may not grasp the righteousness of Hiram, we know that the God, the judge of all the earth, will do right and that this is a righteous act. Father, we pray that you would uh, stimulate us to want to know your word better, to understand it better, and to continue to press to the high ground of spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.